If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter. We have spent some weeks in this marvelous 10th chapter. It is perhaps not as initially well-known as perhaps Romans 8 or Ephesians 2, but the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of God is front and center in this chapter. Jesus has been teaching us how God is sovereign in salvation from beginning to end and how the Lord will bring us to himself and will never let us go. And so this morning we will look at the last section in this chapter, verses 30 to 42. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see Jesus. That you would open our ears, that we might hear marvelous things from your word. That you would open our hearts, that we would be tender with love, that we would be filled with blessing, and that we would seek you all of our days. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. As we come to this section and conclude the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, you may not be able to tell, but Jesus' ministry is coming to a close. I know we're not even halfway through the Gospel of John, but at the end of this chapter, the three years that Jesus had taught, healed, and battled the Pharisees is coming to an end. 
We're going to turn to chapter 11 and we will see the death of Lazarus. And then Holy Week will be upon us. The last week of Jesus' life on earth before his crucifixion. Since the fifth chapter of this gospel, we have seen a conflict between Jesus and the leaders of the Jews, specifically the Pharisees. Today we have the last of these incidents that John records. After this, Jesus is headed to the cross. And that makes this section important. It highlights it for us. We should look into it. Jesus is going to highlight two great truths for us. Two truths we need to know. Truths that affect the way we see Jesus, the world, and ourselves. And so this morning, I would like us to look at these two truths that Jesus brings out. First, we're going to look at some length at a very short but powerful statement that Jesus makes. We're going to look at the truth that Jesus and the Father are one. And then afterwards, we will see the truth that Jesus gives to us of an unbreakable Bible. Of a Bible that cannot be broken. Of a Bible that is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Jesus and the Father are one and an unbreakable Bible. Well, let's begin then by looking at this statement that Jesus gives to us in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, this statement comes at the dramatic conclusion of Jesus' ministry. This is not only the last of Jesus' conflicts with the Jews. It is the culmination of all of his teaching about salvation. We've seen Jesus tell us that he is the only way of salvation. That he is the door. We've seen Jesus tell us that he's the one who cares for his people. That he is the good shepherd. He tells us that he lays his life down for his people. His sheep. And that his sheep know him and believe him because they are his. Finally, Jesus tells us that nothing can separate his sheep from him. They are safe in his hand and in his father's hand. And now he makes this statement in verse 30. It is a short and direct statement. In a sense, Jesus is repeating a truth that he has said before. But this statement is so important that we must look at it. I think we can even say that you cannot be a Christian if you do not believe what Jesus says here in verse 30. What Jesus says is necessary for us to understand what will happen as he goes to the cross. Jesus is claiming once again that he is God. He's claiming that the work that he is doing has been given to him by the Father and that Jesus will finish it. And without this work, we cannot know the forgiveness of sins. We cannot be saved. We cannot be reconciled to God. So what is Jesus saying here 
that is so important. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He is describing for us the unity of the Father and the Son. The unity that Jesus has with the Father. And this unity expresses itself in several ways. First, we could think about the fact that there is a unity of will between Jesus and the Father. In that sense, this statement is a summary of what Jesus has been telling us throughout this chapter. Jesus told us that it is His will that His people have eternal life. We saw that in verse 28. I give them eternal life. And this is something Jesus has been telling us throughout the gospel. In John chapter 3, He says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. In John chapter 8, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing a people out of darkness into light. Out of death into life. That is his will for his people. And that is exactly the will of the Father also. Jesus tells us that in verse 29. My Father who has given them to me. Jesus has a people to redeem because the Father has given them to him. It is not just Jesus' will that a people be saved. It is the Father's will. Jesus is telling us that he and the Father have one unified purpose. One desire. They are one. It's also Jesus' will that his people would be secure, that they would never be lost. He tells us that in verse 28. He says, he is the shepherd who protects the sheep, and he has his people securely in his hand. And that's why they will never perish, because Jesus is holding them fast. But we should not for a moment think that there is any difference in the Father's will. Because Jesus uses the exact same illustration of the Father. He says in verse 29, No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And you remember we have this picture of our lives being safe in Christ's hand with the Father's hand holding on to Christ's hand. There is none that can snatch us away. And so again we see absolute unity of will and purpose and desire. The Father and the Son seek the same thing. That's what Jesus is telling us. But secondly, we see that there is a unity in work with the Father and the Son. In the execution of their will, the Father and the Son are united. It's not just that they desire the same thing. It's not just that they plan the same end. No. They bring it about together. Do you see how often Jesus talks about doing the works of the Father? He does it right here in chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. He says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand (coughs) that the Father is in me and I in the Father. You see, Jesus is saying that 
He works as the Father works. His works are the works of the Father, the works that the Father has given to Him. <coughs> In verse 36, Do you say of Him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Jesus is saying that He was set apart, consecrated, <coughs> and that He was set apart to do the Father's works. There's a very similar thing in John chapter 5, verse 36. Jesus said that the Father had given him works to accomplish. And he said, those are the very works I am doing. What the Father does, Jesus does. What the Father works, Jesus works. Later in John chapter 14, Jesus will expand on this same theme. He will say that the Father is in him... Doing the works. <coughs> now what does that mean? It means that when you see Jesus at work, you can know that the Father is at work also. There is no separation between them. There's no difference. There's no competition. You can know that God the Father not only is in agreement with what Jesus is doing, His power is behind all that Jesus is doing. But there's more, I think, in Jesus' short, powerful statement than this. Not only is there a unity of will between the Father and the Son, and not only is there a unity in the works of the Father and the Son, there is a unity of essence between the Father and the Son. Jesus is not just talking about cooperation in a mission here. There's more going on than we might see in a human kind of unity. After all, we could think, for example, of a husband and a wife united in their will and work raising children. They have the same goal and purpose. They work together in that work, that important work of raising children. Jesus is going into more difficult, more mystical territory than that. He's going to a place that it's difficult to describe and even to give an illustration or an analogy to. Jesus is saying that there is a oneness of essence, of being with the Father and the Son. And we could include, of course, the Holy Spirit as well, that God is the three-in-one, He is the triune God. And you can see Jesus' statement is short, it is direct. We are meant to hear it and believe it. We may not be able to completely explain it, but we are to believe it. Let me give you some pastoral advice. If someone asks you about the relationship of the Father to the Son and about the Trinity, don't try to give an illustration. There is no easier way to make yourself a heretic. There is no counterpart to this. We know of no other being that exists in three persons. And any attempt we make to describe it does injustice to the truth that Jesus is trying to give us. There is one God. We confess this. Shorter Catechism question 5 asks, are there more gods than one? And of course the answer is, there is but one only. The living and true God. This is the great Shema of Israel, found in Deuteronomy. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There are not three different gods. But we also confess that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've seen even in this Gospel of John how the Spirit descends on the Son, how the Father speaks of the Son, how the Son prays to the Father. This is not schizophrenia. They are three distinct persons. Each are God. There is one God in three persons. And we could go to numerous places in the Bible to show that the Father is God and that the Son is God and that the Spirit is God. We saw this, for example, in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. You remember John saying that, giving us unity and distinction. That the Word was God, but the Word was with God, that is the Father. God existing in three persons. Or we could go to Colossians chapter 1 and see that Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. And that in Christ, all the fullness of God dwells. But Jesus is saying that here in verse 30. Simply, directly, forcefully. And we can see this even from the language that Jesus uses. You may recall that the New Testament is originally written in Greek. And Greek is different from English in at least one important respect. In Greek, various words, various things have gender. That is male or female or neuter. In the main, we don't have that in English. We have male persons, female persons, and everything else is it. It's neuter. Now, you can get a little bit of this in English, because, for example, when we talk about a ship, we will often say she, right? That's what happens in Greek. And this word for one could be written in two different ways. It would be perfectly acceptable, perhaps even preferred, for this to be a masculine adjective. That is, for Jesus to say, I and the Father are one person, masculine. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He uses the neuter gender word, I and the Father are one essence, being, substance. He is distinguishing the persons even in the grammar. I don't want to spoil it. We're going to get ahead to this in a moment. Remember this when we think about the fact that every single word of the Bible is crucial. That word makes a difference. And so, then in verse 38, Jesus tells us, he says, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that he is the same in power and glory as the Father. That they are one. That he is God. That the Father is God. That they are one together. The one God. Now this is clearly what the Jews thought. Because if Jesus had been saying, you know, we're unified in our mission. 
we're of one mind. He was even going so far as to say, we're so close together that we're the same, the exact same. They would not have picked up stones to stone him. You see, they realized that Jesus was claiming to be God by this statement. And that was blasphemy. And they even tell us that. That's why they're angry. That's why they're going to kill him. Their response is immediate. It is dramatic. They understand what Jesus is saying. So if anyone ever comes to you and says, you know, I like the Bible, and I suppose Christians are nice enough. You know, Jesus says a lot of nice things. He teaches a lot of good things. But, you know, Jesus never said he was God. Don't get that idea. He's just a good teacher. There's plenty of good teachers. There's Jesus, there's Socrates, there's Plato, there's Buddha, all kinds of good teachers. You take them to John 10, 30. As a matter of fact, it's so short, you don't have to take them there. You can memorize it. You can tell them Jesus certainly did claim to be God. He knew what he was doing, and those around him knew that's what he was claiming. So why is all of this important? Why should we care about this? After all, we confess the truth of the Trinity in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit. We confess this in our Westminster Confession and in our catechisms. We acknowledge the doctrine of the Trinity in our baptisms. We baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We see the foundation for our mission in the Great Commission, in the command of the triune God. This is important because this doctrine is fundamentally what separates biblical Christianity from Judaism and from Islam. It's the Trinity. It is distinct. The Bible reveals to us that God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself is testifying to that in verse 30. I think it's also important because Jesus is God, we can know God. You see, Jesus didn't just teach about God. Jesus didn't just bring the words of God to us, although he did do that. No, Jesus is the unique revelation of God. Why? Because he is God. If we want to know what God is like, what God loves, what God hates, we just have to look at Jesus. We don't need philosophical speculation. We don't need abstract study. God has revealed himself in Jesus. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. And Jesus will go so far as to say later in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Are you not sure what it means to know God? Do you want to have a close relationship with God? Then the answer is to look to Jesus. Study what Jesus says and does in the Gospels. Look and see how he cares, how he loves. 
You don't need to go searching for God. He's right here in Jesus. I think we also see that this is important because Jesus is God. We can therefore know that our sins are forgiven. Now, you may be sitting here wondering how all your many sins can be forgiven. You know all the things that you have done wrong, all the bad thoughts that you have had, all the good things you have left undone. And wonder, how can I be right with God? How can I stand before God? And after all, there are many who object to the atonement by saying that one man cannot pay for the sins of another. And that's true. But Jesus' statement here reminds us that he is no mere man. He is God. That is how Jesus can pay for all of the sins of all of his people in all time. That's why Jesus' death is sufficient to pay for the sins of all the world. Jesus' death has infinite value because he's God. This is also important because Jesus is God. We know that Jesus' words are true. A fear we might have is that Jesus' promises might not be true. Can we really believe Jesus when he says, we will never perish? Can we really believe Jesus when he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand? The answer is yes, because Jesus is God. His words are not only true, they are infallibly true. They could never be false or wrong. He could never be too weak to accomplish his promises. Jesus' words have authority because they are the very words of God. And that means you can trust Jesus. You can take him at his word. When he speaks and you hear his voice, follow him. Obey him. Trust him. That takes us to a second great truth that Jesus gives here. We'll look at this one a bit more briefly, but it is important. It follows on what we've just said, that Jesus' words are God's words. And this statement we see in verse 35, Jesus says, The scripture cannot be broken. This is a powerful and profound statement that is in the middle of Jesus' battle with the Pharisees. And so it is important that we focus on this statement because the debate that surrounds it is a bit confusing. The context for Jesus' statement is that the Jews have picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus responds by saying to them, For which work... Are you killing me? We might say, is it the part where I made the man see who is blind? Am I worthy of death for feeding 5,000? Am I worthy of death for making a man who was lame for decades walk? Tell me what horrible thing I have done. Show me what sin I have committed that is worthy of death. 
And Jesus' point is that he's done many things and none of them are worthy of death. Everything that he has done is good. That's how the Bible describes Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, Jesus is described as the one who went around doing good. Well, the Jews have an answer. They won't be stopped. Their hatred has to vent. And they say, no, it's not for a work that we seek to kill you. But rather, for the words you're giving. In verse 33. It's for the blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. You tried to call yourself the Son of God. And that made that was you making yourself God. Now, there is a real irony here. You see, we're, if I can put it this way, we're in on the joke with John. Because they're saying, who are you, a man, to make yourself out to be God, when we know Jesus is God who became a man? So the Pharisees have it all wrong. They're all upside down. We know that. But you see, what they're trying to do is to convict Jesus so that they can kill him and be rid of them. And Jesus responds to them on their own terms. And this is where it gets a bit confusing. You see, when Jesus quotes this scripture, you may think he's using this scripture to prove his deity. He is not. This is not a proof that he is God. If you think that, you're going to be confused. Instead, what Jesus does is he continually points to his works to show his deity. And we've seen that before. Every time Jesus does a miracle, it's to show that only God has that power and Jesus is therefore God. That he has the power over nature, over sickness, and we're going to see soon enough over death itself. Only God has that power. And Jesus, right here in verses 37 and 38, he points to the works. He says to the Pharisees, if you don't believe anything I'm saying, look at the works. Believe them. And so we need to understand this because I think as we first come to this part of our text, we think Jesus is drawing on a text that shows that he's God as if he's quoting John 1 or Colossians 1 or Hebrews 1. He's not. He's actually telling us something about the Bible and its nature. He's using the Pharisees' own presuppositions against them. You see, they believed that the scriptures were true. They held the scriptures in high esteem. Now, they didn't understand the scriptures properly, which is why over and over again, Jesus has to say to them, have you not read? Do you not know? And he keeps bringing up passages. And so he does that here. He takes them to the Bible to show that simply using the word God about a person is not wrong. He goes to Psalm 82. Now, Psalm 82 is a very interesting place to go. I'm going to be bold and say that none of you has taken the time to memorize Psalm 82. It's not exactly Psalm 23 or Isaiah 6 or Genesis 12 or a past Romans 1 or Ephesians 2. It's, it's not a famous, well-known passage. But that's important here 
Because Jesus is going to a section of the Bible that we wouldn't expect him to go to to make his point about the importance of the Bible. So Psalm 82 is a very short psalm. I can read it in full very quickly. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in all darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he brings us to a psalm that is about the judges of Israel who aren't good judges. God is lodging a complaint against them. He is accusing them. And in that psalm, these judges are called gods, son of the Most High. Yet they are men and they will die like men. So why is Jesus doing this? He's taking them from their plan to use something he said and to ignore the reality of what he had done. And he takes them to the scriptures because they were trying a technicality to convict him. The fact that he had said, I am the son of God. And so what Jesus says is, in the Bible, in the scriptures that you love, the word God is applied to a person. So how could it be wrong in every instance to do that? And so what he's saying is, you can't get me on your technicality. And what's behind this is, look at the works. Judge me by what I've done. Look at who I am. Look at what I've taught. This is not like, you know, you're driving on I-10. And I guess in theory, if you went 66, the police cruiser could pull you over. And your response would probably be something like, they were passing me on both sides. What, what are you getting at here? Everybody does 66. You would think it was kind of a technicality. That's what they're coming after Jesus with. And Jesus says, look, we agree on this point. The scripture cannot be broken. It cannot fail. It cannot lie. It cannot be wrong. And the Pharisees believed that. But what's much more important for you and for me is that Jesus believes that. That the scripture cannot be broken. That means... You cannot come to the Bible and decide what is true and what is not. That's what people like to do. They like to keep the parts that they like and then ditch the rest. Jesus doesn't give you that option. The Bible is true because Jesus says it is. Now, why is that important to us? It means that you can trust your Bible because Jesus did. All of the Bible is true, not just some of it. Do you see what Jesus does? He makes his point, not by going to a famous passage, 
not by reading a long passage, but by taking half of one verse, really focusing on one word of the Scripture to make his point. That's important for us. Every word of the Bible is true. We call that doctrine the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, what do we mean by the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible? Well, let me break it down very simply. Verbal plenary inspiration means that every word found in the Bible, verbal, is given to us by God. And that everything in the Bible is authoritative, plenary. And that every word is divinely directed, inspiration. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 5. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He says in Luke 16, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now you have to understand when Jesus is using the word law there, he means the scripture, God's word. And in Luke 21, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now think about how Jesus is making this point here. He uses one word from an obscure psalm. Not a well-known passage. Now, you need to view the Bible the way Jesus does. It is true. All of it. Every word of it. It is our guide. You don't get to decide which parts are culturally relevant. You don't get to decide which parts are probably not true. Doing that is sin. It's rejection of God's truth. You know, the so-called Jesus Seminar met decades ago, and they went through the Gospels to decide what Jesus really said and what was wrong in the Bible, what was false. And the way they did it was, they voted. They went and they cast marbles uh, on each verse or section to decide whether it was authentic or whether it should be discarded. And then what they did was on a version of the red lettering of Jesus, they had a shade. You know, there was the red passages, Jesus really said this. There was the orange passages, mm, probably said that. There were the yellow passages, not really sure he said that. And then black passages, no way he said this. And they put themselves as an authority over the Bible. But if we are not careful, we do that as well. You know, Thomas Jefferson took a knife to his Bible and cut out the parts he didn't want. And today, everywhere, in churches across this land and in homes, people cut out the Bible because they don't like what it tells them about marriage, about love, about service, about parenting, about submitting. They just get rid of the parts they don't like. And Jesus is telling you, you can't do that. He doesn't do that. There are great truths that we must accept 
and believe. That doesn't mean we need to understand them fully. Some truths are beyond our ability to know exhaustively, like the Trinity. But that doesn't mean we can't know them sufficiently. They have been revealed to us so that we can trust the Lord. And the two truths that Jesus brings to us today are worthy of your acceptance. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus wants you to know that for your comfort, your hope, and your peace. And every word of the Bible is true. You can trust it. Every word of the Bible, including John 10, 30. God has inspired men to write each word of the Bible for your good. He did that because he loves you. And he wants you to know him. You can know God truly and really through Jesus. The scripture cannot be broken.